I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on The Recess Course, we're going to be talking about neonatal resuscitation. I work in an adult emergency department. I don't see any children anymore other than my own children who seem to be sick all the time. And certainly the only baby that I care for in terms of resuscitation are the ones that make their way to our merge by way of delivery. And that is a very high acuity, low opportunity scenario for any any emergency provider. As a quick disclaimer, the content for this podcast is based on the NRP 8th edition algorithm and the views of the authors. While the content of this podcast does describe broadly accepted neonatal resuscitation guidelines, it does not represent medical advice. We have with us today Hannah Weimer. Dr. Hannah Weimer is a CCFP EM trained emergency physician. She has a special interest in women's health and obstetrics medicine and is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine here at Dalhousie University. She has a wealth of knowledge and experience in obstetrics and women's health, and we're lucky to have her here to talk about NRP. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me here, James. Let's start with a case just to kind of frame, you know, the scenario that we're talking about. It's 1130 in your local community Emerge, and a colleague had just received a 26-year-old female who was pregnant in that term who was brought in with increasing abdominal pain. The patient precipitously delivered in the Emerge, and you're the second physician there helping out, and you're the lucky one to be handed this full-term neonate after cord clamping. So obviously a great deal of planning must go into preparing for a baby's arrival, which you know, sometimes we just don't have the luxury of. Mm-hmm. In your mind, what equipment and team should you have prepared in a, in a setting like this, knowing that, you know, a patient is about to precipitously deliver as it relates to both mom as well as the, the baby? So this is obviously, as you said, one of those halo events that we want to be prepared for, but it's obviously going to be incredibly stressful for us. So in this scenario, we don't have a lot of time. But if we do have a bit of time, we quickly want to gather some pre-birth questions to figure out what kind of baby we're going to be dealing with and what type of resuscitation we may need to be leading. And so there are four pre-birth questions, and they, they're quite straightforward. So first, what is the gestational age? Are we dealing with a term baby or a preterm baby? Is the amniotic fluid clear or not? Are there additional risk factors known for this baby or in the pregnancy? And for what is our umbilical cord management plan? And so the the umbilical cord management plan, this is coming in because there's increasing evidence that delayed cord clamping is beneficial for the neonate. The current recommendations is at least 30 to 60 seconds of uh, before the cord is clamped and generally potentially upwards of 60 to 90 seconds. This is different, of course, if a baby requires resuscitation. Those babies we would clamp and move on to a resuscitation immediately. So in this scenario, if we have a bit of time before babies arrive, we want to gather and brief our team, assign roles similar to if we have a heads up for any other type of resuscitation. We want to identify a team lead and prepare for our equipment. Some of the neonatal equipment that's specific for the scenario would include a neonatal warmer. And I would encourage everybody to go and wander by the warmer in their department and figure out how to turn it on because 
this right. this may sound straightforward, but in in a stressful scenario, the last thing you want to do is have people potentially breaking equipment or trying to find that on button. So again, yeah, been there. labeling an on button, we've all at least I've heard through the through the grapevine that again this can be a challenge. And again, I in the one delivery I've been involved in. Thankfully, somebody else was responsible for the warmer. This can be an issue. So you want it turned on. You want it in the room. We also want a neonatal bundle. So in this bundle, we want our airway equipment. So different size masks and a BVM. And if we have it, a Neopuff or a T-piece resuscitator. Uh, we also want supraclotic airway devices, endotracheal tubes, ideally video laryngoscopy, and Miller blades size 0, 1, and, and along with that, so that would be our airway part of the bundle. We also need some vascular access equipment should we require that later in, in our resuscitation. So this includes an IO, that's a neonatal sized IO, and an umbilical line kit. Uh, some other pieces of equipment that we want in our neonatal bundle include scissors, clamps for the umbilical cord, some towels for drying. We want a warm hat to prevent any heat loss. And we also want a Ziploc bag or plastic wrap, which we may need if we have a preterm baby. Ideally, we also have a Braslow tape on our pre pediatric resuscitation cart. And we want a timer in the room because time goes by really quickly after birth. So we want to know what our timestamps are. In terms of our team, so if you're the physician running this, it would be great to have another physician in the room, whether that be an emergency medicine colleague, if you have the luxury of having a pediatrician or a neonatologist in your institution, that would be great. And ideally, you'd want that person, if they're not in, in your facility, contacted so that you might even have some support. But we also want, ideally, at least two nurses and respiratory therapy. RT can be extraordinarily helpful in this situation because they have likely had more recent training in neonatal resuscitation and may have more familiarity with some of the airway equipment. Yeah, I can attest to that. Having those RTs present during these cases is very helpful. Without going into sort of full detail on the status of the baby, could you just walk us through your approach to that initial assessment and management? So there's this minute that's been termed the gold minute, which is really our first assessment of the baby's respiratory status and heart rate. So babies when born, our big three questions are, is this baby term? Do they have good tone? And are they breathing or crying? If the answer is yes to all three, we can reposition the airway if needed. But otherwise, we dry the baby with towels and we place the infant on mom's chest, proceed with delayed clamping. If, however, we're saying no to any of those questions, we need to move down our algorithm. So our first three things to do would be to focus on warming, drying, and stimulating the baby. So in that first minute, we want the baby warmed. So we want the room temperature up. We want the warmer set to 25 degrees. And we're targeting a temperature for baby of 36.5 to 37.5 degrees axillary. We can also potentially use a thermal mattress or heated blankets to help with warming because we know that hypothermia is associated with adverse neonatal outcomes, which include increased mortality, increased intraventricular hemorrhage, hypoglycemia, and increased rates of delayed sepsis. The, as part of warming, we also want to dry baby. The exception here is if we're dealing with a preterm infant that's less than 32 weeks, their skin is very fragile. So we would potentially damage the baby's skin if we were to dry it vigorously with towels. So these babies we're going to actually place wet 
into a Ziploc bag with a head out and place them under the warmer. The next part is stimulating the baby. So this is either going to be rubbing the back and or flicking the soles of the feet to try to get that vigorous response that we're looking for. In, so after we've warmed, dried, and stimulated, we only suction if needed. In older versions, suctioning was routinely recommended, and especially for meconium, that's not in the new algorithms. So we only do suction if we have a complete airway obstruction. And if we do need to suction, we're going to suction the mouth first and then the nair. So we've moved through those three things. Now we're still in our first minute. We're going to see if the baby needs supplemental oxygen. So if baby is not radicardic, so heart rate's well over 100, but there's labor breathing or cyanosis, what we may need to do is add supplemental oxygen. We need to remember that normal SATs are low in the first 10 minutes of life because the infant is transitioning from fetal to adult circulation. So there will be ongoing right-to-left shunting. And in SATs of 90 to 95%, that's going to take about 10 minutes for a, for a normal neonate. We want that tar- targeted preductal O2 saturation chart taped to our warmer so that we know what we're looking for. And then, again, depending on how much um, trouble baby is having breathing, we may need to add supplemental oxygen. We may need to consider CPAP if the ba- breathing remains labored or the patient's having ongoing hypoxia, but the heart rate is, is adequate just to help open up those alveoli and recruit lung tissue. And if we do need to move to, to CPAP, we would start with a PEEP of 5 to 8, deliver it through a T-piece resuscitator or a flow inflating bag. It's important to remember that we can't deliver a CPAP or PEEP to a baby with a BVM. If, on the other hand, we're dealing with a baby that's having ineffective respirations, so apneic, gasping, or bradycardic, we may need to move directly to positive pressure ventilation in this first minute. So after we've warm-dried stimulated and we still have an aptic baby or bradycardic baby, here is when we're going to start positive pressure ventilation. And once we're providing positive pressure ventilation, this is when we need a pulse oximeter to guide our resuscitation. We want to remember that we want a preductal oxygen saturation, so we want a pulse oximeter applied to the right wrist. And at this point, we also want a three-lead ECG monitor. The ECG monitor is going to be more reliable in a neonatal resuscitation than the older methods of either auscultating or palpating the cord to determine a heart rate, especially for people like us who aren't used to doing the, either of those things and in a busy resuscitation space. So a three-lead ECG will give us a reliable heart rate and help us target our, our resuscitation. We can either use a self-inflating bag valve mask or a T-paste resuscitator, and ideally we're delivering a peak inspiratory pressure between 20 to 25 millimeters mercury or just until we see chest rise if we're using a self-inflating BVM. The, the main thing here is to remember that we're dealing with a baby. This baby's lungs are very fragile. So all we want to do is deliver just enough volume to produce visible chest rise and we want to minimize any barrel trauma. When we're doing PPV in this first minute, we want to remember that we're targeting 40 to 60 breaths per minute. And this 40 to 60 breaths per minute is, can be remembered kind of with a, somewhat of a chant. So breathe two, three, breathe two, three, breathe two, three. That's a good way to remember how fast you're going to deliver those breaths. For term infants and essentially all infants, we can start with room air. So an FiO2 of 21%. 
we do not want to start a resuscitation with 100% FI2. Uh, this has been associated with increased mortality. Awesome. So we hear a lot about this guy, Mr. Sopa. Who, who is he and uh, why is he so important? So that's a great question. So this is a very helpful mnemonic to help us troubleshoot common ventilation problems when we aren't seeing the increase in heart rate or aren't having chest movement in that first 15 seconds of positive pressure ventilation. So running through the mnemonic, M stands for mask adjustment. So here we want to make sure we have the right size mask for the baby. So what we need to make sure is that it covers the bridge of the nose and to the chin. And we want a good fit. And this is where a two-handed approach can be preferred just to get that good mask seal. Our next step, so the Mr. part, the R part, is to reposition the airway. So here uh, we can perform a jaw thrust and we can place the shoulder roll to achieve the sniffing position in the neonate because the neonate has a relatively large occiput to the body. So we may need that roll under the shoulders. We also want to make sure we're avoiding hyperextension. If we've done our mask adjustment and repositioning, we reassess. If we need to move down this mnemonic, the next thing to do would be S, which is suction the nares. O is, stands for opening the mouth. And then at this point, if our baby is apneic, we may need to insert an oral airway. We've again reassessed, and now we're going to the P and A parts of the mnemonic. So P stands for pressure increase. So if we would increase our PEEP at this point to six to eight millimeters mercury, and our peak inspiratory pressure to above 20 millimeters mercury, depending on where we started, to a maximum of 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury, using, again, ideally that T-piece resuscitator um, or Neopuff. So the very last part of Mr. Sopa A stands for an alternate airway device, and this is either going to be an endotracheal tube or a supraglottic airway. Awesome. So let's say after a minute of doing all these maneuvers, the neonate's heart rate is 86. What are you going to do next? So at this point, we assume that you've provided positive pressure or ventilation initially. You've checked for chest movement. You've performed all of the above ventilation corrective steps. And you're reassessing the heart rate and respiratory effort. And this is now that 30-second mark. So this heart rate is really reflective in this neonate of effectiveness of ventilations as the most common cause in the neonate of bradycardia is going to be hypoxia. So in this scenario, we have a heart rate that's not rising. So at this point, we're going to prepare for an alternate airway and insert either an LMA or an endotracheal tube. What if the patient's heart rate's even lower? Like what if it was, say, 50? So at this point, if we haven't inserted an LMA or an AT tube, we're going to do that. And then we're going to perform 30 seconds of positive pressure ventilation with our advanced airway. If our heart rate is remaining 50 with an advanced airway in place, or under 60 really, so our heart rate is 50. So if it remains under 60, this is when we start chest compressions. So we've had 60 seconds of, of ventilation with an advanced airway, and we're still bradycardic with a heart rate under 60. We're going to do a three to one ratio with our positive pressure ventilation. And the technique we're going to use for this baby is a two thumbs encircling technique. We want to remember that we want our thumbs on the lower one third of the sternum, and we want to compress one third of the chest diameter. At this point, uh, we're moving to 100% FiO2, and we want to make sure we have ECG monitoring on. If we're at the step of chest compressions, we want to start thinking about securing vascular access, either with an IO or an umbilical line. 
so that we have a line ready for meds and fluids if needed. But we're going to keep chest compressions going for 60 seconds, and then at that point, we're going to reassess the heart rate. If the heart rate stays under 60 at 60 seconds, then we're going to give our first dose of IV epinephrine. In terms of the intubation phase that you mentioned, this seems like some of the skills from adult intubations uh, should carry over. You know, obviously there's the cognitive and psychological component of, of the intubation, the neonate. Any pearls on that phase of care, neonatal intubation? So that's, I think, a great, great question. And again, something that we are familiar with from an adult setting, but our adult skills don't necessarily translate into our pediatric resuscitation. Because we, we have a neonate that's going to desaturate very quickly. And so our goal is to insert and secure an advanced airway in under 30 seconds. And this is where I would encourage you to think about the use of a supraglottic airway device. A 2018 Cochrane review found similar efficacy to endotracheal intubation. That being said, the evidence is still limited in, in neonatal settings and in neonatal resuscitations. But more and more evidence is pointing towards the fa fact that a supraglottic device can can be very quickly and safely inserted and be as effective in these resuscitations. A few things to remember about supraglottic airways is that we can't give these can't use these for all patients. So if we have a, a baby who's gestational age under thirty four weeks or under one and a half kilograms, these patients need an endotracheal tube. We can't use an LMA in those cases. We also can't give medications through the LMA, which may be important if we're having struggles with vascular access. If we do decide to proceed with endotracheal intubation, the video laryngoscopy is ideal and has become standard of care. It's going to improve our first pass success rate and decrease our risk of complications. It would be really important to have a size church in your peds resuscitation cart or your pediatric bundle, because again, this is something that you're, you might be grasping for once a year among all of your providers. So again, something that it's hard to commit to memory, but just to run through that quickly, uh, you're going to be using a miller or a straight blade, and you're going to use a size one for a term infant and size zero for a preterm infant. In terms of your sizing, so if you have a preterm infant under 28 weeks or under one kilo, you can have a two and a half, 2.5 endotracheal tube. If they're 28 to 32 weeks or one to two kilos, it's going to be a 3.0 tube. Two to three kilos or 34 to 38 weeks is a three and a half endotracheal tube. And then above 38 weeks or above three kilos is going to be a three and a half to 0.0 endotracheal tube. One way that we can try to remember the depth of insertion is to add six centimeters to the weight in kilograms. And remembering that that insertion depth is quite important in, in a baby because there's a very short trachea. So it's quite easy to inadvertently intubate the right men's stem bronchus. Yeah. One of the pearls that I was taught some point along the way in terms of endotracheal tube sizing was this sort of rounding to the nearest five and, and divided uh, dividing by 10. So a 25-week gets a 2.5 tube, a 30-week gets a 3.0, a 35-week gets a 3.5, and a yep. term baby or a... Or a 40-week baby gets a 4.0. Yep. So again, and sometimes it's useful to have these calculations stored somewhere on your phone, which is your external brain in these scenarios, so that you can look that up quickly before. Awesome. Let's say you get to the point in the NRP algorithm where you have to give 
epinephrine. What's the best way to give it? I know you mentioned you can't give it through an LMA. If you do have an endotracheal tube, is that still in play or do we really need to get vascular or osseous access in these patients? So, so vascular and osseous access is preferred as a route for epinephrine. But as you're working to secure either that IO or that UVC, the endotracheal tube could be used as your first dose while you're getting that, that, that access ready. So this is one advantage of an endotracheal tube. And your initial endotracheal dose is going to be 0.1 milligrams per kilogram or one milliliter per kilogram. All right. What, what about the umbilical line? How does it compare to an IO? Can we use the IO or should we always be putting in an umbilical line? And if we do have to put one in, how, how do we do that? So again, great questions. So as IOs are becoming more common, there is increasing literature, but it is still quite scant in the neonatal resuscitation literature. Some of the challenges with IO insertion that differ from an adult or an older child is that the infant's cortex is very thin. So it's much easier to backwall the, the IO. And, and some of the complications that have been described in the literature, aside from malpositioning and extravasation, include infection, fracture, compartment syndrome, and limb ischemia, as well as rare cases of fat or air embolism. If we're inserting an IO, it's important to remember that our preferred site is the tibia, and we want to be at least 10 millimeters from the tibial tuberosity, so a little bit more caudal than in an older child. So right now, UVC or an umbilical line is the preferred resuscitation access. But as IOs get used more and more frequently, we may see a movement towards changes in neonatal resuscitation practice in the future. If we're inserting an, an a, a umbilical cord catheter, what we need to do kind of practice this. It is relatively straightforward once you are familiar with the equipment and have practiced the insertion in a simulated type of setting. So the, the equipment needed for this procedure is quite simple. You need the catheter, which is a single lumen 3.5 or 5 French catheter. And if you didn't have that, you could potentially use a 5 French feeding tube as a substitute. Then you want a UVC tray, which is ideally pre-made, and a normal saline flush. You may not have time to have full sterile equipment because unlike in a NICU setting, this is a resuscitation but it would be a good idea to wear sterile gloves. We then need to prepare the infant for the line insertion. So what we're going to do is we're going to clean the cord with chlorhexidine or betadine and loosely have umbilical tape that's wrapped around the base of the cord. Then we're going to cut the cord with a scalpel so that we have a stump that's about one to two centimeters from the skin. So now we have the cord ready. Now we just need to get our catheter ready. So we're going to get a three-way stopcock and we're going to attach that to the catheter. We're going to attach our normal saline flush to the stopcock and then flush the catheter with saline. And so now we have a prepared catheter and a prepared umbilical cord. So now we're ready to insert the catheter. So what we're going to do is insert that catheter into the umbilical vein. And we can easily identify this vessel because it's that single thin-walled larger vessel compared to the two smaller thick-walled umbilical arteries. So the single thin-walled big target, we're going to insert that around three to five centimeters until we get free flow of blood when we aspirate with an open stopcock. And we're going to flush that and secure it in place by tightening our tape. And that's it. Now we are ready to continue our resuscitation and we can give resuscitation medications and volume expanders through our umbilical line. 
Amazing. So you insert it into the mouth of the smiley face when you're looking at the cord and transaction. Exactly. Exactly. What about epidosing? Uh, I know you talked about how much you'd give through an endotracheal tube. Can you touch a little bit about the ideal dosing in these patients through your umbilical line? Absolutely. So the dose range of epinephrine, that ranges between 0.01 and 0.03 milligrams per kilogram, either given IV or IO. And they suggested initial IV or IO dose of 0.02 milligrams per kilogram or 0.2 milliliters per kilogram. And so some evidence around epi and flush volumes has recently come out of literature. So there was a study in 2021 done by San Coran et al. And what they looked at was different doses of epi in different flush volumes in term newborn lambs who were in cardiac arrest. And they compared a 0.01 milligrams per kilogram dose to a 0.03 milligrams per kilogram dose. And they found that the higher dose epi was associated with increased ROSC and earlier time to ROSC than the lower dose epi. They also found that the increased uh, flush volume along with the higher dose epi led to higher rates of ROSC compared to a low dose and low flush volume. So this is why in the latest guideline they're recommending this dose range, and they say that you can consider increasing subsequent doses. And they also have a flush rate, flush volume that has increased to three milliliters of normal saline, either IV or IO, after each dose of epi, where this was previously 0.5 to 1 mil. So your dose range for epi is 0.01 to 0.03 milligrams per kilogram, but start around 0.02 milligrams per kilogram. And you want to flush each dose with three meals of saline. Awesome. Any other meds or treatments that you might consider to try to reverse the underlying cause of this neonatal arrest? So if we've given, so we've now um, secured a definitive airway in this neonate. We're delivering pressure ventilation. We're doing CPR. We've given epi. So now if we have persistent bradycardia, we need to start thinking about some underlying pathologies. So are we dealing with hemorrhage or hypovolemic shock, or do we have a pathology like a pneumothorax? If we've had ease ventilating and we're now running into difficulties, we want to go through the same dope mnemonic as we do in our adult intubated patients. So thinking about displacement of that endotracheal tube, obstruction of the tube, either with blood or meconium, the potential for a pneumothorax, and so decompressing if we do identify one, and then any problems with their equipment. If we have a, a newborn infant where we suspect blood loss and they are not responding to our n- initial resuscitation, this is the case where we want to consider early volume replacement either with crystalloid or blood props. However, in the infant without blood loss, there's not good evidence to support volume expansion, but we could consider this in a refractory case because sometimes blood loss can be a cult. Hypobulimia is relatively rare in the neonate as a cause of neonatal arrest. Because again, if the baby is anemic, it's likely been anemic over several months in utero. But again, there are some exceptions to this. And one one of the big exceptions would be a placental abruption. So if we do suspect something like an abruption, our resuscitation fluid of choice would be O-negative cells. We can also use normal saline if we do need a crystalloid. And our initial bolus volume is 10 milliliters per kilogram over 20 minutes. We can repeat this, but at that point, we should start thinking about pressors. 
That's awesome. So many little things to think about, like any resuscitation, really, but just the fine tuning mm-hmm. of these all these little details. I want to talk a little bit about how long you might run a neonatal resuscitation. I imagine that these scenarios, the tendency would be to go as long as possible. And I think that's probably related to the sort of the psychological component, the emotional component of of these cases. How long should we go until help arrives? Or is there some definite time period where we can say there really is no opportunity here for a positive outcome, whether or not that's survival or neurologic function in this in this neonate? So exactly as you said, this is obviously a very, very difficult decision. There's some evidence to suggest that long-term outcomes of survivors of prolonged resuscitations, that those outcomes have improved somewhat from previous years. There was a 2020 systematic review done by Wickoff et al., and they found 15 studies that included a total of 470 infants who had all experienced resuscitation beyond 10 minutes. In this group, Hevelta Hospital discharge was 41%. In terms of the composite outcome of survival without neurodevelopmental impairment, there were 11% who had survived without moderate or severe impairment, 18% survived with moderate or severe neurologic impairment, 69 and 69% had died by follow-up. Two of the two percent of these infants were lost to follow-up. In terms of, of resuscitation beyond 20 minutes, there are even more limited data. So there were only five studies looking at a total of 39 infants in a very prolonged neonatal resuscitations. And 38% of these infants survived until last follow-up, and 40% of survivors did not have moderate to severe neural impairments. So 40% had mild or less neurological impairment. That being said, there were some limitations in terms of the follow-up with this group. So it's re- in terms of a reasonable time frame, it is reasonable to consider stopping resuscitative efforts around the 20-minute time frame after birth. But obviously, this decision to stop or to continue efforts needs to be individualized. It really needs to be informed by factors like gestational age, any congenital anomalies that are present, how adequate your resuscitation has been, and what the family's preferences and values are. You also need to start thinking about what post-resuscitative resources exist and how quickly they would be available, including neonatal intensive care, intensive care and access to therapeutic hypothermia. So again, there's not a clear answer here, but we have some evidence regarding timing that might make this decision a little bit easier. Yeah, well said. I mean, this is just, I don't know if this is ever going to be an easy decision overall. And I hope I never have to make this decision. And I certainly don't envy those that that do have to make this decision. And just to add to that, James, I think that it's important to involve families in this. And I think that I I also haven't been involved in, in this situation. But I think the family seeing that you have done such an extensive resuscitation and them being involved in every step and being informed can certainly give them help give them some closure if, again, you do have to call it a neonatal resuscitation and, and terminate your resuscitative efforts. Yeah, well said. Hannah brings up such an important point here. 
in general, it's important to just involve families in a lot of these discussions, not just ones that you're going to be terminating resuscitation or deciding about terminating resuscitation, but even the ones that are going well and ultimately have a good outcome. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. I'm just wondering, is there anything that we missed? Any big points we still need to cover or any last thoughts? So again, just as a reminder, most deliveries and most deliveries that you will encounter will be uncomplicated. And in terms of a neonate, all that will be required is warming, drying, stimulating, and then assess the infant when the infant is on mom's chest and all has gone well. What we're preparing for here is that uncommon scenario, which may happen once or twice in a career where we need to lead a neonatal resuscitation. And because these neonatal resuscitations are halo events, and again, we're dealing with with something that is well outside of our typical comfort zone in terms of patient age and, and certain specific physiologic parameters, we really do need to deliberately practice to maintain our knowledge and our skill set as the guidelines change so that we can perform optimally in this high-stress clinical situation. And that's why I would really encourage anybody who hasn't completed an NRP course to consider NRP and then being engaged in CME, which may include simulation, so that, again, you can practice some of these procedures like airway management in a neonate and vascular access and IO access, so that if you do have to perform this, you can at least have the comfort with that skills. Uh, absolutely. I can't agree more with that. That's, that's what we're all about at the recess course. Thanks so much, right. James, for having and- me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.